So we're on Judges 4, so you, you see over the last few weeks we get a picture of the different judges that God utilized throughout the Old Testament and the uh, history of Israel. And so we get to number 4, chapter 4, and uh, man, I tell you what, there's some interesting stories in Judges. I mean, things that, I mean, this would make quite the television sitcom if someone were to recreate everything that happened, and I definitely would watch it. Uh, but anyway, we see all these things, and there's always a theme that runs throughout, and the general theme of judges is that everybody does what they think is right. And so you'll hear that over and over and over uh, throughout the series is that they did uh, evil in their own eyes based on what they thought was right or acceptable. Uh, unfortunately, that is just a recurring, uh, you know, a cyclical theme that takes place throughout. And so as we jump into chapter 4, Uh, The first blank on your handout is that it is impossible to live your entire life and never do anything that requires faith. Now, you know, we can get into an apologetic debate and we can say, oh, you know, well, you know, I don't, you know, of course, no one in the room would say this, but some people would say, well, I don't believe in God or, you know, I don't have a belief system or I don't have faith in my life. And I would say, not true. Everyone operates with some type of faith in their life. You know, the simple example is, oh, you know, I've heard all my life, oh, you know, there's a chair, and if I sit in this chair, I am having faith, or I'm believing that this chair will hold me up. But even some things that we do more day-to-day, like, for instance, take driving, for instance. How do you know, does anyone know, every single person that you pass and their driving record and ability? You don't know. Do you realize how close you get to people when you're traveling on a two-lane road? I mean, you're literally 24 to 48 inches from someone, but you're having faith in them that they're going to stay on their side and you're going to stay on your side, right? How about pilots? You know, we, uh, we took a uh, student mission trip this past summer uh, to the DR, and so we get on one of the legs of the flights And one of the pilots comes on and he says, hey, I understand uh, that Natalie Dickinson is on the flight with us today and her uh, grandfather wasn't able to be the pilot on this flight, but we'd like to say welcome to Natalie Dickinson. And so she was a celebrity on the airplane for that flight. And so everybody's looking around, you know, hey, who's Natalie? And, you know, oh, her grandfather's a pilot. But you don't know the pilot. When you get on that plane, you just smile and wave, right? You just keep walking. You're not asking for credentials. You're not asking what school do they go to? How many hours have you logged? As a, you're not asking any of those questions. You believe that someone else has done enough homework to trust them, and you're inherently receiving their trust in doing that. That's what flying is. Now none of you are ever going to fly. You're like, I've never thought of that, right? Or how about this? When I was, uh, when I was younger, uh, there was a place in Ellisville called Challenge Country. Anybody ever heard of Challenge Country? Challenge Country is a ropes course. And so you go, all right, yeah, Michael knows. Right, so you go, to, you go to this ropes course, and they have all these different things where you learn to trust as a team. Well, one of the things that they had is you would climb a 25-foot light pole, just the pole. Uh, and so you would climb the light pole, and then you would stand on top of the light pole, and then you would jump off the light pole and reach out and grab a trapeze bar. And there were tons of people who couldn't even make it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to climb a light pole, uh, but it's pretty hard to do, you know, which, you know, credit to all the linemen out there, right? And so they're climbing, you climb up this light pole, then you stand on the very top, which I don't know what the diameter of a light pole is, but it's not very much. And so you're both feet and you're swinging, and then you jump out and try to grab the pole. If you talk to Pastor Brian or Pastor Chandler, they'll tell you stories of students who will spend hours on the top of that pole because they're afraid to jump. They don't have the faith or the confidence to leap out and that that bar will hold them. Or the person who you just met three minutes ago has a cable connected to you on the ground that he's not going to let you fall. Right? Those are examples of things, and there's millions of examples, that we have faith in a lot of different things. So we all exhibit faith. The question is, are we exhibiting faith in God? Are we exhibiting faith in God? What does that look like? 
Well, it's an important question that hopefully we'll answer tonight because Hebrews 11.1 very specifically says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, but it's the evidence of things not seen. So there's this unseen element, if you will, to faith, that you are believing in something, that you're putting trust or faith or belief in to something that you have not yet seen, that you don't yet have confirmation of. And then, you know, he says the conviction of these things. The word conviction is that you are internally persuaded. So said another way, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the internal persuasion of things you have yet to see. Romans 14 says this. The latter part of the verse says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if faith is the substance of things that we hope for, the evidence of things not seen, that, that later on in that chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, he says it's impossible to please God without faith. And then Paul says in Romans that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So in other words, he's saying that everywhere in your life faith exists, but if your faith is not faith in God, well, then you are far off track. And I'm afraid we live, maybe even subconsciously, in the realm of faith, but not faith specifically in God. You see, when you are convinced of something, when you are so convinced of something that it's true, it will change the way that you interact with it. For those people that have climbed up the light pole, and they've jumped off, and they've grabbed that trapeze bar, you know what they are? They're confident. And some of them are pretty cocky because that's pretty impressive that you can do that. But they're confident, right? They're confident that they, that pole will hold you, that that, uh, that uh, trapeze bar is capable of holding you, and the person on the ground is not going to let you fall. It's the same for us. When you have faith in God and you begin to operate in the realm of faith, guess what happens? Your confidence in God begins to grow. You see, faith, then we would say, is being internally persuaded that God will do what He says He will do in the future. That's what faith is. It's being persuaded that God will do what He says He will do in the future. Christianity is based upon the fact that Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we believe that Jesus is the only way. And we also believe in John 15, 5, uh, or in John 15, where he says, uh, where I go, I, I will prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Which means we believe Jesus is the only way and that there will be a day where we will all stand before God. Because why? Because he said that we would and that he would prepare a place for those who've trusted him. So that's what faith is, is belief in a future event of what God will do. So what happens then and we're about to unpack this whole thing. But what happens then when your present circumstances look nothing like a faithful future? What happens when your circumstances today don't look anything like the faithful future that you're hoping and you are expecting? You see, in our own minds, we all have these grandiose visions of what we think should be or will be. You know, maybe you have a life plan and you've got things that you hope will happen in 5, 10, or 15 years. And maybe you've got, you know, spiritual plans and you've got things that you hope that God will do in 5, 10, or 15 years. And certainly for every believer, we have the hope of the resurrection, both for ourselves and for those that have gone before us, right? But sometimes our present circumstances don't reflect that. And so as we unpack here in Judges chapter 4, we're going to see you know, what's happening in Israel and what God does through the people that he chooses to use. So we'll pick up in verse 1. It says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. I'm not sure how you say that. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So they've been oppressed for 20 years by Sisera and Jabin. It says in verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. 
She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. Seems fitting, right? Between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So we see this lady that we're introduced here to in chapter 4 named Deborah. So Deborah shows up uh, on the scene and under the palm of Deborah, which probably is how it got its name, she begins to judge uh, situations that come up between people just like a judge does today, like we're familiar with. Now, she's a little different than the previous two judges. The first two judges, uh, Othniel and Ehud, they operated in the southern part uh, of Israel. And so now we move to the north. And this is more near the Sea of Galilee where a lot of the Gospels take place. So we see Deborah's operating in the north. And we see again, the very first verse says, again, they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So once again, we see this spiritual merry-go-round of faith that Israel is in, this cycle of good and bad and good and bad. And so for, unfortunately, the third time here now in the fourth chapter, Israel has backslid or whatever word you want to use. They've fallen back into their old way of serving false idols instead of following God. And so chapter 4 then picks up with this story. You see, Israel has yet to learn the nature of what sin will do to them. Now, the same could be true for all of us. You know, when you read the story that in verse 1, that they again did evil in the sight of the Lord, I feel that way about myself sometimes, right? Do you ever feel that way where you make a mistake, you fail, and you say, man, I made another mistake. You know, and so often in our life, because we are all sinners, we often fall into this trap that we sin and we make a mistake. And then the devil, just like Pastor Tony talked about with the darts this past week uh, of the enemy, is that he'll begin to plant this thought of, well, hey, it's normal. It's normal for you to sin. It's normal for you to make mistakes. Hey, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody sins. And so we, we begin to build this identity that I am a sinner and everybody else does it. So it's normal for me to do that. Sin was never meant to be normal. That's a lie. That's not what God intended for to be for us. And so John writes in John 8, 34, he says, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, a slave to sin. So if you're here tonight and like Israel, you keep getting tripped up and you keep falling, the answer is that God does not intend for that to be that way in your life. He says, John says, everyone who practices sin, as he quotes Jesus, is a slave to that. Romans 6 says that we're not to be slaves to sin, that we're supposed to be slaves to righteousness. And so Israel is falling into the scenario to where over and over and over, they're allowing sin to trip them up over and over and over. And the stark reality is that it's impossible to live in faith when you're enslaved by sin. You can't become all that God wants you to be when you're constantly being held back by the sin that, as the Bible says, so easily catches us. And so in your life and my life, as we talk about faith tonight, and, and maybe God's, you know, even now beginning to stir this little, hey, I really want to know more about this living by faith thing. What does that look like? Well, the first step is identifying sin in your life and removing it. That you're going before God and saying, God, I want to live a life of faith, but in order for me to believe that you can do the impossible, I'm asking you to do the possible. I'm asking you to remove the sin. Help me to repent of that sin. Remove the temptation. Help me to put safeguards in place so that I'm not ensnared by that sin. Because the reality is, sin is the counterfeit, present pursuit of a future promise. I want you to think that through as I was thinking this through, this came to mind. So I want, I want us to unpack this. Sin is the counterfeit. It's not what God intends for us to have. It is the counterfeit, present pursuit. So what sin is, is me saying, I want what the promises tomorrow are right now. I want the freedom to make my own choices right now. I want to live without, uh, you know, without constraints right now. That's what sin is. Sin is a counterfeit of saying, instead of waiting for the future that you know will be amazing, that's infinitely better, as the Bible says, you know, what God has prepared for us, no mind can comprehend. 
was infinitely better than anything that we could currently possess. What sin is, is flipping the script and saying, what you can have right now is way better than anything you could wait for. Right? That's what sin, every one of us have been ensnared by that. What sin is, is it is attaining or achieving something, mostly, might I add, by substitute, of the things that we think that God owes us or the things that we think we ought to have. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments. They're pretty basic, but all covering, right? That we envy the things, that we covet the things that someone else has because we believe that we're good enough to have that or that we deserve that. That's what sin is. That is what Israel is experiencing over and over and over. And if our story of our life was written, the stark reality is that that first verse in chapter 4 is the same first verse that would be written about you and that certainly would be written about me, that Matt did the wrong thing again. And so as we look into the pages of history, it's easy for us to look at Israel and say, man, those guys were a bunch of losers. But the reality is it's a picture of me and you. That God desires to do great works in our life, and God has already, look how far you've come. He's already done amazing things in you and through you, and yet we continue to be captivated by sin again and again and again. You see, Adam and Eve wanted knowledge, but they already had knowledge of the greatest thing that they could have, and that was knowing God, right? But yet the enemy says, no, there's something you don't have that's way better than what you do have. But that's what, again, that's what sin is. Likewise, here's Israel. They find themselves pursuing present satisfaction. It was easy for them to compromise. It was easy for them to adopt the Canaanite principles instead of God's principles. And so they exchanged present satisfaction for future promises and protection from God. And so here comes Deborah moving into the scene. Now, interestingly enough, and this will be hilarious in a few minutes, Deborah means, the name Deborah means honeybee. Honeybee. Yeah, do the math on that. It's pretty interesting. So here's Deborah. Deborah comes up. The Bible tells us a little bit about Deborah. It says that she was a prophetess. So she's a spokesperson for God. And we also know that she was a judge. And so this is someone who, you know, has a reputation that, of doing what is right, of having discernment, of knowing the right things to say and do. Um, she's someone that was tasked by God to help lead Israel. And she has some great qualities that God was able to use. One of the things that you'll you read through in, in this short narrative here is that she took initiative. And as we'll learn in a second, you know, to have faith, it takes initiative that you've got to move. You've got to, you've got to go out. You've got to step out. And she used her strengths that God had given her uh, to, to, uh, to accomplish the things that God wanted. And so the question becomes then, and we're going to get into it in the latter half, so we're just going to hit it straight up here at the beginning. The question becomes, should a woman lead? controversial, right? Think about it. In the culture today, there's culture wars about this. Should women preach? Should women lead? I mean, it's a huge, hot topic. I mean, I'm treading on thin ice up here right now. I see some of you looking at me like, what are you going to say next? Right? Hot topic. Well, what do you believe? Right? Here's the deal. And I'm going to give you some information. I'm not going to leave you hanging, all right? But here's the deal. You need to know what you believe about this. What does Scripture say? What are you internally persuaded that's true about this topic? Because this is an easy topic. It's an easy topic. You're going to be confronted with much more difficult decisions in the future of what you're going to have to decide what you believe is true or not and how much you believe it. That's what faith is. So what do you think? Somebody ask, you don't have to answer out loud, but somebody ask you the question, hey, do you believe that women should lead? Do you believe that women should preach? What, what are you going to say? Uh, well, that's a great question. I'll get Pastor Matt to call you. <laughs> no, I'm not calling him. That's a great question. You should go talk to Pastor Tony. Well, he's not here tonight, so we should say yes. That's what everyone should do. 
No, he's, he's out. So, yeah, so, right, you need to know that. You need to know what that means. You need to know mostly, uh, mo- more importantly, what you believe about that. So I'm going to say a few things about it, and then I'm going to give you a resource. All right? Women are free to use their gifts in every role except for the one that God has reserved for men. God has reserved the elder teacher in the Old Testament is likened to the priest for men. That's how God has said it. So it's the elder bishop role, and God has established that role for men. You can read that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. And just a few short weeks ago, Pastor Tony preached a message on that. And uh, it was very clear, very direct. Uh, you know, he and I were chatting about it. I said, there's nothing else that I need to say that you haven't said on the topic. So if you'd like to go back and listen to that message for more information, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. But here's what I'll say. Men and women are equal. God created man. God created woman. But men and women are not equivalent. And that God made man to do something and God made a woman to do something. We're both, men and women are both made in the image of God. And men and women are equally as important. The role of which God has called a man to doesn't diminish what God has called women to do. It's equally as important. It's just a different role. And so when we talk about, I don't want to get you hung up on that. That's why I wanted to, you know, get out of the gate here at the beginning. Because we're starting with Deborah. We're going to run into Barack. And then we're going to run into JL at the end. And so more than 70% of this narrative is about women doing things in the kingdom of God. So make no mistake about it. Women are very important in Scripture And they are extremely important in the kingdom. And so this division, this divisiveness between, you know, what should a man do and what should a woman do is a distraction from what is God doing. Because that's the point of the story, right? And if I make it about me, well, then I'm missing what God is doing. So I hope that helps. If it didn't help, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Uh, It is on the website. So we see in in verse 6, we pick it up. It says, she sent, so this is Deborah. And she summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, uh, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, uh, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali uh, and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon uh, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. How do you feel if you're Barak right now? So wait a minute, I'm supposed to do all the work, and yet a woman's going to get the credit for that. How's that going to work? Deborah arose, he said, and went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. Uh, and 10,000 men went up to, at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. So Deborah told Barak what he should do. Hey, here's what God is commanding you to do. So she's communicating information. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but the language says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? So it could be assumed that Barak should already know this, that God had already told him. She says, has the Lord not commanded you? So in other words, don't you remember what was said? Or don't you know that's what you should do? So we, we're not sure exactly if this is the first time that he's hearing this. So, but together they established this plan. And he says, look, I'm not going unless you are going with me. And so we pick up in verse 11. It says, now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And he had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Z is what we're going to call it, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, uh, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. Now, if you'll remember in the very first message, I talked about these chariots of iron. 900 chariots of iron, uh, indestructible. No one can beat them. And all of the men who were with him from Hirosheth 
H to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And so the, the scene is set. You can see the narrative here. So they did as uh, Deborah had instructed. They've got this strategy. It works to a charm. They know exactly what they're doing. God has clearly given instruction here. And then in verse 15, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, mind you, 900 indestructible chariots, and all of his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot, and he fled away on foot. So he's a chicken. He gets, you know, scared. He realizes he's losing. And so he abandons his army, and he takes off running. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to HH, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left except for the chicken Sisera who was running away. All right? So in verse 17, But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Now remember, we've already heard about him. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera. And so she comes outside of her tent, and here comes the sissy running by. And she says, hey, turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. So he's instructing her to lie. Verse 21, but Jael, the wife of Heber, uh, took a tent peg and for the faint of heart, hold your ears, took a hammer in her hand. Then she, she went softly to him. And she drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Unnecessary three words, right? So just think about what's happened in four chapters. So thumbs and big toes have been cut off. A sword has been stabbed in someone's belly to the extent that the fat encircled it. And now this guy has a tent peg drove through his skull. I mean, this is unbelievable. Verse 22, and behold, as Barak uh, Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera, again, unnecessary word, dead, and the tent peg in his temple. Of course he's not alive. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, isn't it interesting how in verse 24, they pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, and they, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So it doesn't sound like he's the king anymore. All right? So here we are introduced to another woman, and her name is Jael. Her, her name is Jael. So we have Deborah, the honeybee, and we have Jael. Now, Jael's name means mountain goat. Now, I don't know about you ladies in the room, but I'm pretty sure mountain goat is not an, uh, an endearing term, right? So I thought about the message tonight should have been called honeybees and mountain goats, right? We got Deborah the honeybee, and we got J.L. the mountain goat, and clearly she's acting like a mountain goat by driving the stake through his head. So she, she's, you know, she's familiar with that, setting up and taking down tents. This was a woman's job in those days uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and so the tent peg and the hammer, they were basically a woman's household appliance. And so she is very familiar with how to do that. She drives the tent peg. Uh, through his head, and now he is dead. So we've got these two ladies, Deborah and Jael. And it seems that this narrative is about how God is using women in the Old Testament. Again, almost 60% of the narrative is committed to these two ladies. But according to the New Testament, that is not actually what this story is about. When we pick up in Hebrews chapter 11, this is what the Bible says. 
It says, what more, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, if you want to write that down. What more shall I say? For time would tell me, would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and he goes on and on, lists a few names, and this is what he says. Well, what, what is he telling us about? Well, in verse 33, here's what he's telling us. Who, these guys, through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced judge, uh, justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. And he goes on and on to tell all the things that they did. And so he's telling us, the writer of Hebrews is saying, and this is the hall of faith, if you will, uh, in Hebrews 11 is what it's known for. He's saying that this story of Barak is actually, this is a story about faith. This is a story of someone who was against insurmountable odds that believed that God could do what no one else believed that God could do. You see, this is a story that teaches us several things about faith. And so for the next few minutes, I just want to unpack some things that you probably know about faith. Maybe you need to be reminded. Certainly I've been encouraged about tonight about faith because it seems as though sometimes we felt, I was talking to somebody this week about, about discipleship. And I said, you know, one of the most difficult things for a pastor is to take complex theological issues and make them simple. And oftentimes, as we talk about discipleship, people think that we've got to take that, you know, us as as followers of Jesus, not as pastors, but as followers, oftentimes people think, well, I've got to take simple theological concepts, and in order for me to grow, I've got to make them complex. Well, that's not true. You see, what God desires for us is not to make simple things complex, but that we would simply apply simple things, right? God's all for us learning more. God's all for us increasing in knowledge. But if that knowledge doesn't lead to application, well, then we're wasting our time. And so I want to go back down, if you will, this memory lane of faith. I want you to be reminded of, I want to encourage you, but certainly remind you of what faith is and what it looks like in your life. Because I I believe sometimes in our life, especially if you've been following Jesus for a long time, that sometimes we can forget, I really should just simply be pursuing a life of faith. That I need to be living a life that exemplifies what I actually believe. Just like I challenged you earlier, you will be confronted with questions that you are going to have to put a stake in the ground. Just like J.L. did. The future for us is probably not easier. The future for us is probably more difficult. That you will have to take a stand for what you believe. And so it's important while you have the time and clarity and margin to think about what you believe, to actually formulate your thoughts and ask God to help you establish what it is that you actually do believe. And so I want to take us down this memory lane of faith. I want to point out a few things in the story to remind you of what faith actually is. You see, number one, faith was never intended to be in isolation. Faith was never intended to be in isolation. So oftentimes we believe that my belief is my belief and your belief is your belief. In verse uh, 8 of chapter 4, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Moses said something similar to God. He said, I'm not going unless you're going. Right? And so that ought to be the declaration of our hearts is that, God, wherever you're going, that's where I want to go. And if you're not going, I'm not going. You see, no one, God is not calling you. No one is being called to be a cowboy of the faith. No one is calling you to do things that God is sending you out and saying, you're not getting any help. Faith is not intended to be in isolation. The movement of the Western world has become in the last several decades that faith is a private matter. I mean, think about it. Every one of us grew up in different contexts, but for the large majority, you may not have talked about faith in your household. You probably couldn't tell me the the faith story of how, if if there are believers in your family, how they came to know Jesus. What did their life look like? How did God change them? What did that look like in their life? The story of faith is a story that seems to be less and less told. 
You see, we, we, we've been taught to believe that this faith is this personal belief system that is between you and God only. Now, that's not untrue. Your, your faith is personal. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You just read it in John chapter 3 in D group. He said, you must be born again. But that's not where it stops. That's where it starts. That's where your faith begins. We've been told, what are the three things that you don't mention at Thanksgiving dinner? Religion, politics, and money, right? Those are the three things you don't bring up in a, in a mixed company. And the result is what? What has that resulted in? It's resulted in a society that is financially illiterate, ignorant of governmental policies, and void of the Spirit of God. That's the smartest thing I'm going to say tonight, all right? I just want to warn you. But it's true. I mean, think about it. I work in finance every single day, and you would not believe the illiteracy that is present financially. You wouldn't believe the things that people actually believe government can do or government should do. And you wouldn't believe the things that people do apart from the Spirit of God. Why is that? Because the world has forced us or tried to force us to believe that faith is personal and it's private. And you do you and you believe you and I'll believe me. Faith was never intended to be in isolation. You see, in Philippians, uh, I'm sorry, in Philemon chapter 4, um, verse 4, Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And, and look what he says here. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all of the saints. Let me ask you a question. Who's talking about your faith? Right? I mean, that's a great self-reflective question. You have, you have God doing amazing things in our fellowship, and, and there are some of you, God's doing incredible things. Who knows about that? Paul's saying, look, I've, heard, I've been praying for you, and I've heard about the faith that you have and the way that God is working and the things that God is doing in your life. But nobody knows those things. Few people hear the stories of faith anymore because no one is talking about them. Oh, we'll talk about football, or we'll talk about the Braves turning a double play in the ninth inning to win the game, right? We'll talk about all those things, but who's talking about what God's doing? Faith was never intended to be in isolation. You see, someone is talking about their faith because Paul says, when I hear, when I hear, not if I hear, our faith is certainly personal, but it's never private. Our faith is certainly personal, but it's never private. You should be discussing the things of what God is doing in your life. You see, when God spoke to Deborah, she said that God would use Barak, but someone else would get the glory. What God is doing is He's working in the context of community. He's using Deborah's giftedness. He's using Barack's military might, and he's using JL's hammer, hammer accuracy to accomplish his purposes. I mean, think about the story that JL had to tell. I mean, think of that story. Oh, yeah, I was, you know, I was just out, you know, putting some milk in some new uh, goat skins, and lo and behold, the commander of the army comes running by and asks me if he can hide in his tent. And I said, of course you can hide in my tent. And she begins to elaborate on this amazing story, and she says, sister, you know how good I am with a hammer. And so he showed up, and I drove that tent peg right through his skull. I mean, she's telling, look what God delivered. Look how easy he made it. You know, we want to talk about our struggles, but why don't we talk about our victories? Why don't we talk about all the amazing things, how God made it easy, how things are amazing, how God is doing this, how God is doing that. You see, in order for your faith to flourish, you have to be actively participating in faithful things, right? Here's what I would do if I was you. If I'm in your spot and you're saying, man, that's true. I got to, man, I got to get out of this isolation. I got to get involved. I want God to do something radically in my life through faith. Here's what you do. Pause, look around, find somebody who God is doing something radical in their life, and attach yourself to that person, right? 
say, I want to be near you. I want to see what God is doing. I want to hear the stories of faith. I want to be around the activity of God. You see, what happens, and I've said this so many times, but it's so true, is that we draw a circle around ourselves and we say, God, I sure wish you'd work in my circle. I got this nice circle here, God. I got, I got flowers here, and, and I've landscaped it, and, and I keep the grass cut, and I got a nice circle, God. And you should come and work. My circle, should, it's worth being used, God. I mean, there's a lot of people who like my circle, and so you should do something in my circle. Isn't that what we do? And here's why we do it, because we think that it's about us. But faith is never self-serving. We think it's about us. We think, well, I'm going to do it by myself because I'm going to do it for myself. Self-serving. Look in Judges 4 9. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. It's going to lead to somebody's glory, but it's just not going to be yours. She says, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. You're not going to do it. Now, this would be an easy part of the narrative and certainly logical by today's standards and understandable by today's cultures to which Barak would say, nah, I'm not going then. Right? Well, I'm going to do all the work and somebody else is going to get the credit for it. I'm not going. Unless my name is on the plaque of history, I'm not doing this. But that's not what he did. The Bible says in Hebrew 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 32, that he says, through faith. He believed that God was going to do what was best for the kingdom, regardless of who got credit for it. Man, if we had a church full of people who believed that God would get all the glory and it didn't matter who got the credit, imagine the things that the kingdom would accomplish. You see, when we live through the lens of faith, it keeps us from honoring ourselves during success or despairing in our struggles. It helps us to keep the main thing the main thing. Instead of being in isolation, instead of being self-serving. So I was thinking about this self-serving faith. And I thought about Luke chapter 15. You're, you know, most of you are familiar with the prodigal son, right? So there's two boys and the younger says, you know, dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. And so dad says, okay. So he gives it to him. And he runs off and squanders it. Loses it all, ends up eating with pigs. Then he says, you know what? The servants are eating better than me. I should go back home. And so he goes back home. And as he comes back, he imagines that his father is going to be upset and reject him. And yet the Bible says that the father saw the son from a distance. And he ran to him and hugged him and kissed him and threw a party and gave him the robe and gave him a ring. And everybody's excited except for older brother. He's not really excited about this. And in Luke chapter 15, you can go back and look at it. I'll read it to you tonight. He says this in verse 28. It says, the older brother says, but he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and he entreated him, but he answered his father. Now listen to what he said. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. You see all those personal pronouns in that story? All of a sudden, it's not about what God has done. God has redeemed younger brother. God has brought him home. God has done a work in his heart. God has shown me a a front row seat of what it looks like for a father to forgive his son. And yet I'm dissatisfied with that. Because why? Because I didn't get the glory. Look what I've done. I'm not getting the glory. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Is that not one of the most selfish things you read in Scripture? He says, what about me? Isn't this about me? Isn't it about what I want? Isn't it about my needs? You see, every story of faith in the Bible, it's about what God has done. It's not what Barak or, or it's not what Deborah did or Matthew or John or Moses. Those are stories that God used of what he did. Your story. You know what your story is? It's the story of what God is doing wherever you're at. That's what your story is. 
You just get to be a part of it. I just get to be a part of the story. In verse 14, the Bible says the Lord has given. In verse 15, the Lord has routed. Your story is His story through you. Faith is never meant to be self-serving. You see, faith was never intended to honor you. It was always designed to point to Jesus. So when you think about your faith story, does it point to Jesus? That's a story of faith. If, you're, if you are the hero of your story, it is not a story of faith. Let me say that again. If you are the hero of your story, it is not a story of faith. Well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. Well, then it's not God's story. God's story is a story of things that God does. I was talking today about, I was talking with someone about uh, part of my story and how God, you know, moved us and how we ended up down on the Gulf Coast. And I said, you know, it's an incredible story. I'll have to share that with you one day. And they said, God always leaves a trail of incredible stories. Think about that. God always leaves a trail of incredible stories. Is that the definition of faith in your life? That God has left a trail of incredible stories. You see, for some people, the reason that's not true is the next thing that we're going to see here is that it's not true because faith requires movement. Faith requires movement. In order to have faith, you have to move. In order to have faith, you have to move. I have based my life upon, and you've heard me say before, what Henry Blackaby wrote many years ago, and that is find out where God is working and go join Him. To look around and say, who is living a life of faith? Who is God doing an amazing work in? Who is leaving a trail of incredible God stories? That's who I want to be around because that's who God is working in their life. You see, faith requires movement. Look, look at this is incredible. So Judges chapter 4, Judges chapter 4 is the story that we read. Judges chapter 5 is a song. If you do, <laughs> if you do what Deborah and Barak and J.L. did, you might write a song too, okay? And so in chapter 5, they wrote a song. And so they're singing about all the things that happened in chapter 4, which is amazing. And so in, in verse 15, this is what they say. The princes of Issachar came up uh, with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great search searchings of heart. All right? Pay attention here. Verse 16. Why... Did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were again great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives. And Naphtali, we see this again, too, on the heights of the field. Interesting, isn't it? Now, what did we say? Faith requires movement. Look what happened. Reuben, well, the, the tribe of Reuben, they stayed home with the sheep. Twice, they were searching in their heart. Gilead, well, they didn't even come into the promised land. They stayed on the other side of the river. All right, how about Dan? Well, Dan, they stayed with the ships. You know, guys, when you're done fighting, uh, we just want to make sure nobody steals the ship. And so we're going to hang out here by the coast. And then Asher also said, you know what? If Dan's going to keep the ship safe, we're going to fish. And so we're going to hang out here by the ocean. And when you guys are done, we're going to have dinner ready. Right? So they didn't even involve themselves in what God is doing. Deborah comes up and says, hey, haven't you heard? This is what God is doing. Barak, man, let's go. And so who goes with them? The two tribes, uh, Zebulun and, and Naphtali. But the other tribes are like, ah, no, I'm not feeling it. I don't think I want to go. I, I don't think I want to be involved in that. I'm going to hang out and keep things safe here back at home. You see, sometimes we get so bogged down in our faith 
Maybe you find it hard to pray. Maybe you find it hard to serve. Maybe you even find it hard to believe. And what this does is it begins to take a toll on some people to the effect that it immobilizes their faith. Now, I'm not building in an excuse here. I'm explaining an excuse. All right? Some people are immobilized. You're saying, you know what? There's not an incredible trail trail of faith in my life. Well, could it be that you have been immobilized? That you've been discouraged? That you stopped taking actions? You see, there's a major decrease in your mental health when you stop taking action. And so maybe the reason that, just like these tribes uh, that is being described here in Judges, maybe the reason that you're sitting still is because you don't believe that God can do what He said He can do. Maybe God didn't do what you thought He should do. Maybe God didn't use you and instead used someone else. And it caused you to cross your arms And sit down and say, well, I'm just going to sit right here until I figure this thing out. Remember, what did we say faith is? It's the substance of things hoped for. Scripture teaches this. And the evidence of things not seen. Dan, Asher, Reuben, they couldn't see what God was going to do. And so they said, you know, we're just going to sit right here. You become unmotivated. You become anxious. Maybe you become discouraged. And the result for you, as it was for these tribes, is that they became isolated. They became immobile. And they certainly became unmotivated. The result of their immobilization was that they found themselves stuck in the ditch of faith. They were stuck. They were stuck. Now, no one intends to be stuck. I'm from the country, and I drive a four-wheel drive. You don't get stuck in a four-wheel drive. All right? But I've seen a lot of people stuck in four-wheel drives. And the same thing is true for faith. Do you say, no, I have faith. Everything is going to go the way that I want it to go. And I can tell you that a lot of things in my life didn't go the way I thought it would go. And the same is true for you. And what the enemy has done is he's caused you to believe that the present is better than what God has in store for you in the future. And so you've put your faith mobile in park. And you've sat right where you're at instead of moving in faith to what God is doing. Look, I don't know what tomorrow holds. And it wouldn't do much good if I did. But I know, and this is an age-old saying, I know who's in control of tomorrow. And that's enough for me. Because that's what faith is. You see, meaningful work will help you to find fulfillment. Meaningful work will help you find fulfillment. If you want to know what God wants you to do and you don't yet have the answer, do what you know to do until you find the answer to what's next. What do they say about waiters? What do they do while they're waiting? They serve. And it's the same for you and me. If you say, I'm stuck in the ditch, what do I do next? Serve. Serve your neighbor. Serve your spouse. Serve your friends. Serve your church. Serve your neighborhood. Find a way to do something in the name of the kingdom right? It's not self-serving. It's not in isolation. It requires movement. Do something. Move. But instead of involving themselves in the things of God, and instead of involving them things in the things that God was doing, they sat still. What about the tribes that mobilized their faith? There were only two. But what happened with them? Well, think about it. There are 900 iron chariots that we're about to go fight. They have 900 iron chariots. We have zero. If you read Judges 5, we don't even have iron swords. All right, so they have a tremendous advantage. 
We don't have the advantage. And yet, the two tribes, but Zebulun and Naphtali, they risk their lives on the height of the battlefield. And, might I add, God noticed. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When he heard that John had been arrested, this is Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Here is an area that is known for these two tribes. How is it possible that this area is known for these two tribes? Could it be that through their movement and belief in God that he would do what he said he would do and grant them the victory, that the stories of faith have been told through generation of generation and generation? Right? This region was the area that was settled by the tribes Zebulun and Naphtali after the conquest. They named it after them. You know what they name places after? People who do something. Right? It's the same for us. It requires movement. What does this tell us about Jesus? Well, it tells us that Jesus moved where people moved. He left Capernaum and he went there. He went to a place that represented people who were doing things in their faith. That's incredible. So faith requires movement. And lastly, here tonight, because of faith, we can have courage in the face of overwhelming human odds. Maybe you're here tonight and you're like, you know, man, that sounds scary. And uh, I I mean, I'd like to do that, but I'm not sure if I can. Well, because of faith, you can have courage. You can do things that you didn't think you could do. You could be involved in things that you never thought you'd be involved in because of faith. You see, what's happened today, and and I mean, I got to give it to him. He's done a great job. The enemy has done a fantastic job of utilizing fear. Everything is based on fear today. You know, hey, close your doors, wash your Amazon, uh, Amazon packages, use hand sanitizer, right? All, you you can't, can't go outside, it's airborne. Oh, you, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. And, you know, whatever you, you think of, all these, everything's based on fear. Everybody's going to die. Everything, we're gonna, everybody's going to war. Everything, all these things, always something. Everything's based on fear. Everything is based on fear. Everywhere you turn, there is a reason to be afraid. If it's not a virus or a war or financial systems, there is always, always a reason to be afraid. It's been said that courage is always an act of faith because the courageous person acts on what he believes despite the threat. So to be, by, because of this faith, we can have courage. So in order to be courageous, well, next week we're going to talk about Gideon. And he was pretty courageous. Well, how can you do that? What does that look like? Well, courage comes from basing your actions on promises. Courage comes from basing your actions on promises. What does God's Word say? That's what you should base your courage on. If, he say, if you say, well, I can't go there. I don't know, I don't know what God's going to do there. Well, I don't know if God is there. Well, I'm pretty sure He is because He says what? In Matthew chapter 11, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I'm pretty sure that He's going to be there. I also know that He says that we're more than conquerors uh, through Jesus Christ who saves us, Romans 8, 37. I know He also says in Romans 8, 1 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know He says in 1 John 4, 4, greater is He who is in me than He who is in the world today. I know He says in Philippians 4, 13 that I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. I mean, we can go on and on. Revelation says that we overcome by what? The blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. I know there's hundreds if not thousands of places in Scripture that are promises of God that if I base my courage on that, if I base my actions on that, I can have courage. But if I base it on what I see, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If I base it on what I see, guess what I'm not going to have? Courage. 
because I'm going to be against overwhelming odds. I'm going to have overwhelming odds, just like Elisha's servant, when he looked out and the army was surrounding them, and he was terrified, and he says, what do we do? What do we do? And Elisha said, God, give him eyes to see. And he looked out there, and he, he saw an innumerable amount of God's army, and he says, oh, we're good. We're good. Right? That's what courage is. It is basing your actions on the promises of God. Think about it this way. When you were a kid and you were afraid of something, and someone that you love and trust told you that it was going to be okay, what did you do? You accepted it, right? Are you sure there's not a boogeyman in the closet? No, I promise he's not in there. Are you sure I'm not going to fall? If I, if I fall back, Dad, and, and you'll catch me, do you promise Right? You know, little kids like to jump off things. And so when our kids were little, you know, we'd put them up on, you know, stairs or something. And they, they would jump off and, they, and you would catch them, right? And they believed every single time. And they would say, okay, catch me, Dad. You promise? Right? And then they would jump. Because they believed that what you said was true. Because you said you promised. And when you base your courage, when you base your actions on the promises of God, you can have courage, just like the little kid that says, Dad, you promise? And you say, yes, son, and then they do it. You see, when they believe that it's true, then they will do what they were afraid to do because you promised it would be okay. Right? Now think about that. When we do what we believe to be true, we can do it because we're not afraid because we believe that what God says is true. That's what courage is. And often throughout Scripture, you see two things linked together, strength and courage. Joshua said many times, be strong and courageous, right? So in Judges 4, 3, it says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had uh, Sisera had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, you know, I don't want to get into all the details, but uh, in Judges chapter 5, you can read where uh, Sisera's family is waiting for him to come back, and they think that he has taken the spoils of victory. He was a terrible person. He did things to women that he should not have done. You can read it in Judges chapter 5. And so God ended his life by a woman. Very fitting, by the way. And so Here's this guy who did terrible things. Jabin and Sisera dominated Israel for 20 years because they had 900 iron chariots and Israel had zero. But here's what happened. Barak didn't go into battle because he thought he would lose. He went into battle because he believed that God would win. Kids don't jump into the arms of their parents because they believe they will fall. They do it because they believe you will catch them. In Judges chapter 5, verse 4, Lord, when you went out from Seir, well, how did, how did Barak believe that it was going to be okay? Well, Judges 5 gives us insight into that. This is, again, something incredible. In Judges chapter 5, verse 4, Lord, when you went out from Seir, so this is Deborah and Barak talking, when you marched from the region of Edom, so how in the world, listen, how did 900 chariots of iron lose to zero chariots of iron? How did that happen? All right, listen. When you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. That's what happened today. Miracle, right? The clouds dropped water. And then in verse 21... So we see that these iron chariots were down in the dry riverbed. And then guess what happened? God rained down water. And then in verse 21, the torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. That's incredible. 
So what happened is they, they drove their iron chariots down to this dry riverbed because that was the fighting ground. And they said, well, you know, this is the drought, the dry season, so we can drive these big, heavy iron chariots. Well, guess what? God said, all right, well, I'm going to wait till all those iron chariots get down there. And that was Deborah's plan, remember? When I say go, go. And so all the iron chariots, they wheeled their chariots down there. And then, boom, the water started falling, and the riverbed sent a gush of water down the river, and it wiped out 900 iron chariots. So what did God do? He sent the river into flood stage to immobilize the Canaanites, listen to this, and to mobilize the Israelites. You see, that's what God does in our lives. Remember, we're talking about that by faith we can have courage. So when you find yourself against things, you know, mountains that are impassable, what do you do? You say, you know what? There was a time in the Bible where God pulled 900 iron chariots into a dry river, and then he set it into flood stage. If he can do that, he can do it now, right? Courage. You see, what God is calling us to do is he's calling us to walk by faith. I hope tonight as you've looked through this story of Judges that you've seen with fresh eyes what God created you and he created me to do. That he's calling us to walk by faith, to mobilize our faith, to actually live out. If you believe the promises of Scripture, then the result of that is courage. That you will live by faith. That you will actually say that you actually do the things that you say. That the next time someone asks you something that's controversial about culture, that you'll say, you know what? Here's what I believe because here's what the Bible says about it. Because I can have courage because of God's promises. And what will that do? What will that courage do for me? It'll do the same thing that it did for the Israelites. It will mobilize me to where God is moving, and it'll allow me and it'll allow you to be a part of what God is doing. Doesn't that sound exciting? Look, I don't want to live a boring life of faith because there's no such thing as that. I want to live a life to where I'm on the edge of what God is doing. And I'm, you know, sometimes I'm in the middle and sometimes I'm on the fringe, but I'm around the things of what God is doing. And my desire is that I'd always be bullseye in the middle. But I know me. And I know that I'm not always going to do the right thing. And I know, and you know you, and you know that you're not always going to do the right thing. But if we can say, God, help me to be what you want me to be. God, help me to have the courage. What did, they, what did Peter say? Jesus said, where is your faith? Right? Oh, you of little faith, where is your faith? I think that's what God is saying to a lot of people today. Where is your faith? And just like the centurion that we might would declare... God, I have faith, but help my unbelief, right? Help my unbelief. So that's my prayer for me, and it is certainly for you, that we would operate in courage through faith for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for tonight. God, thank you for the example of Sisera. God, how that you overcome.